0: who by forced marches has arrived on the field of battle in time to save the engagement just at the critical moment, much in the same fashion as his namesake did at Antietam 116 years ago. You all know of him, you probably all remember him for his inability to stop the rain in Fredericksburg this past May as our tour chairman, With very little ado, as I've been requested, (laughs) I'm very happy to present to you our Senior Vice President, who tonight will talk to us on the 67th Ohio, Merlin Summit.
1: Well, thank you, Glenn. I guess it's time for the uh, Christian versus the Lions real pleased that all of you have survived the monsoon of Frederick birth. But I have to uh, make a brief apology to uh, some of the people in the audience tonight. Uh, some of the ladies have already heard this speech, an, an earlier version of it. And one uh, lady was very gracious to tell me that she came here knowing that anyway. So I'm very thankful for that. And also to Jim Geerman who uh, said he had to come down here to uh, hear the speech even though he had heard uh, one of the very first versions of this speech. It just so happened that this particular address has never been given when I've had a great deal of time to prepare for it. So with that as a preface, in October of 1879, at a Cleveland, Ohio meeting in which James A. Garfield was the principal speaker, a resolution was passed favoring the erection of a memorial to perpetuate the memory of the men of Cuyahoga County who responded to the call of patriotism in the War of the result. The design of the monument, its financing, and location were not settled until seven years later, following a protracted court suit, partly because the site chosen required the removal of a statue of Commodore Oliver H. Perry. But the park had been selected of public land dating back to 1796 receded by the state of connecticut it was decided to have a grouping of four bronze statuary clustered about a 12-foot columnar shaft of black quincy granite which weighed about 14 tons and the four statuary groupings would represent the infantry the artillery the cavalry and the navy and the foundation of the column would form the tablet room the four walls of which would be lined with beautifully colored marbled tablets which had the names of thousands of Koyhoda's brave sons who would engrave there. The bronze statuary about the columnar shaft about one-third larger than life size was primarily the work of a Levi Scofield the infantry group represented the the defense of the flag of the 103rd Ohio The gables of the Foundation are paneled with the seals of the state of Ohio, the Grand Army of the Republic, and the Loyal Legion. And inside are additional panels depicting the beginning of the war in Ohio, the Sanitary Commission, the Emancipation of the Slaves, and the End of the War or the Peacemakers at City Point. This last panel shows the scene as Lincoln left his steamer, the River Queen, and went ashore to visit Grant's headquarters. Not long after these conferences with Lincoln came the Battle of Five Forks and the surrender of Lee's Army of Appomattox. In 1894, on July 4th, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument was dedicated in a park area called Central Park, a public square along Superior and Ontario Streets, with an address from William McKinnon, a reading of the Declaration of the Independence, and several choral arrangements by school children. That evening, Yachts on the nearby Lake Erie were lit up brightly and marked music floated through the air from several concert bands. Engraved on the shaft above the Sanitary Commission panel is a striking quotation taken from an address of Henry Ward Beecher which concludes, Till the mountains are worn out and the rivers forget to flow, till the clouds are weary of replenishing springs and the springs forget to gush and the rills to sing, Shall their names be kept fresh with reverent honors, which are inscribed upon the book of national remembrance? The subject of my speech this evening is about images, and the centers is about um, members of the 67th Ohio Infantry Regiment, whose names are inscribed upon the tablet. Now, this regiment is not nearly as well-known as, say, the Iron Brigade or the 20th Maine, and it didn't have an unusual uniform like the one worn by the Watt, and its personnel didn't contain any predominant nationality such as the 39th Missouri with a heavy German background. So, this is a study of a typical Ohio volunteer infantry regiment. What's more, the 67th activities, with the possible exception of Kernstown, didn't involve a major battle, and many of the references in this narrative will be to fix a locality for you. For example, the regiment reached Melbourne Hill on July 3rd, but the primary engagement at this site occurred on July 1st, 1862. And further, for those of you who have a researcher's researcher's inclination, you will readily comprehend the difficulties encountered in tracing the activities of the 67th OVI, when knowing that there isn't any regimental history listed in Thornwood, and only a brief scattering of references and difficult to obtain books. And aside from the Battle of Kernstone and Fort Wagner, this regiment didn't participate in any regiment in any engagement immediately recognizable, and most of its duty was spent at such relatively safe places as Hilton Head. Fortress Monroe, It didn't even participate in the Grand Review at the end of the war. But it did fight as part of General Butler's bottled up operation at Bermuda 100, particularly at Warebottom Church, Virginia, which very few Civil War books even bother to mention. And I have only seen one printed map that's made reference to it. Very few people in this room with possible exception of the audience uh, members who have heard the speech before would have heard of its commanding officer. Uh, it has an amusing ring to it, Colonel Otto Burstenplan. Now, that name is not quite as uh, fantastic as uh, Simulfinny, and we, I'm glad to see we have some Simulfinny fans in the audience tonight. But it's curious nevertheless that of the last bit of. A gentleman with a name of First Invinder to be such a misfit in the Army. The 67th was organized in Ohio at large between October of 1861 and the following January, after which it was inducted into the Federal Service by Captain Dodd of the 15th USA Infantry at Camp Chase, located near Columbus, Ohio. And following a review by Governor William Dennison, the 67th departed for West Virginia because William Rosecrans, in the scary aftermath of Bald Bluff, called for more troops immediately. They traveled by way of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in a week-long rainstorm over tracks so covered with water that nighttime locomotion was out of the question. Each night they bivouacked on slopes well away from the tracks. The 1912 annual reunion of the regiment notes that the these patriotic volunteers did not wait for the paymaster to pay them, but entrained on the B&O Railroad immediately upon cars with rough boards across their seats to the Ohio River at Bel Air to Benwood, West Virginia. But then curiously, the reunion paper goes on to list each time that they were paid in the name of the officers who made the disbursement. They were assigned to Brigadier General of volunteer Frederick West Landers Division and sent to Paw Paw Tunnel on the Upper Potomac. As it was late January and they had no tents or cooking utensils, and the only protection from the bitter wind and rain and snow came from temporary huts constructed of forage fence rails which were covered with hemlock boughs or from huge camp bonfires, they were miserable. They marched to the Cacophon River over which they ported Reached gloomery Gap in mid-February, where General Lander, in leading a charge against a rebel's nest, was seriously wounded, and he died from his wounds the following March 2nd. Brigadier General James Shields, one of the many politically inspired generals who had been a senator, replaced Lander. And about this time, Lieutenant Colonel Cole goris replaced Colonel Burton Butler. The record on 1st and is very At the time of his replacement, he has been under arrest. And I have to be honest with you that I have been totally unable to find out why. His service record is absent of specification of charge, merely stating, sick at Winchester, under arrest, present or absent, not stated, March 1862, present, in arrest to June, present, July, absent, without leave, dismissed July 27th by order of the President on Special Order Number 175. But if you research what Special Order Number 175 was, you will find that it was Lincoln's suspending the of the of Cabeas purpose. My presumption is that there is an error in his service record, but he was just a fairly well popular fellow elected by his Congress. But with Burleson Binder's departure, leadership with a measurable quality arrived for the 67th. Forrest would be with them professionally throughout the war. From Stark County in Akron, he had served briefly in the Ohio State Legislature and in the 17th Illinois Cavalry. Major E. C. Dawes, in an address to the Ohio Commandery of the Loyal Legion of the United States in 1896, said this about Forrest in a speech entitled, My First Day Under Fire at There was a soldier, A.C. Boris, in the 17th Illinois, whose relatives at home I knew, and whose acquaintance I had made a few days before the battle. I saw him as his regiment came up and asked him, as he was a veteran of Fredericktown and Fort Donaldson, to come with him. He replied, Ask the captain. And the captain said, Boris is a good man, he may go. But said to him, Watch the regiment and don't get lost. Boris came with me. He was a brave, cool man. First he found some infield rifle cartridges for company A and filled their nearly empty boxes. Next he went along the line telling the men he had seen the elephants before and had learned that the way to meet him was to keep cool, shoot slow, and mean well. He said, why, I just like shooting squirrels. And when these squirrels have guns, that's all. And pretty soon he called out goodbye and as he hurried to his company I saw his regiment moving to the left flank while his story includes this incident in his book on the of bloody april under Boris the regiment met stonewall jackson at Kernstown, Virginia. jackson's mission was to prevent federal reinforcements from leaving the valley to reinforce McDowell, who was preparing to march overland from Fredericksburg to join mcclellan on the peninsula Jackson's sources of information in Winchester, which was primarily Turner actually, led him to believe that Shields had withdrawn, leaving only a rear guard of about four regiments. Actually, Shields had most of his division up, some 9,000 men. And even though it was a Sunday, Jackson prepared to annihilate what he thought to be an inferior force, sending Halperston's and Garnett's brigades to assault the federal right, while Ashby's cavalry was to hold the pike. Jackson's attack hit Tyler's brigade and was pushing it back until Kimball's brigade moved out from its concealed position in support of Tyler. The 67th Ohio was part of this action. The Confederates, low on ammunition and outnumbered, were routed, one of the few times that this would happen to Jackson. Morris had had his troops mentally ready to meet Jackson's Confederates that day. A few days before, he had received an order from General Bank's headquarters threatening to punish anyone making unauthorized forages about the countryside. And Boris called the men together and told them that if he ever caught them stealing from the enemy, he would raise the devil with every mother's son of them when they got back to Ohio. And this caused one lad in the rear to sing out with what Boris had intended all along. He waits until then. I guess we can point him. And a few days later, Boris <laughs> discovered chicken feathers scattered about the front of his tent. <laughs> Here is a slightly edited account of, by Boris of his fight with Jack. Lively artillery firing with distinct cuttering of musketry aroused the boys to the realization that their day of glory had come. I rode forward to headquarters to get my instructions, which were delivered to me in about this way. Our picket line has been driven in and the general wants you to restore. I inquired where and what manner the line was to be replaced. Oh, you go out there and you will find out. I went out and I did find out. In one hour we were under a brisk artillery fire from the enemy, and to relieve ourselves from these ugly missiles, the 67th Ohio struck the enemy obliquely in front of a strong wall, behind which the enemy were pressed. I withdrew the 67 from the front line of the wall and placed my men so they could direct their fire down the wall and strike them in the flank and rear. The enemy began to stampede down the wall, which, which extended for a long distance down the hill. And the shouts of my boys could be heard after the din of battle as they charged now after the broken fragments of the enemy's line. One of the participants, And this flanking woman was the captain of Company A, Henry Comminger. Perhaps uh, most of you are familiar with Henry Comminger's more famous grandson, Henry Steele Comminger, who is the author of the two-volume work, The Blue and the Gray. He's a professor of history at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and I'm very proud to say that he's autographed my copy of that work. Another participant in this engagement at Kernstown with a different kind of a story, though just as noble, is that of Donaton Wheeler. He was a sergeant from Company G. Before the war, Wheeler had been a student at Oberlin College and then at Yale, and he was on guard duty over some army stories when he heard the firing commence. He stole away and reported to Colonel Boris with his rifle and went into the battle representing his Company G by practice, so to speak. At some point during the engagement, he broke his leg and was returned to home while mended. As qualified men for command became more scarce, he secured a captaincy in the 129th Ohio, and this was the highest rank that he ever achieved. But after the war, Wheeler mysteriously rose in rank just about commensurate to the number of years that passed until his death came about in Chattanooga in 1914. His obituary reads, General Wheeler passes away. Well-known Chattanooga dies at age 79 following a stroke of paralysis. General Jonathan Wheeler, one of the best-known attorneys and capitalists of this city, died this afternoon following a stroke. General Wheeler was on the directorate of many enterprises in this section, and his estate is valued at a million and a half. And the executor of this state wrote to the federal government asking for a list of the, quote, many regiments with which General Wheeler served. And he must have been shocked as if by a bolt of lightning at a response of a minor government official who said too, is a captain. This mythical promotion and an implication, <coughs> me, the implication of a vast Civil War activity led me to be curious as to how Wheeler has broken his leg at Turnstone on the supposition that one error makes all the data suspect, but his service record indicates only a broken leg without any additional description. And even though the record isn't clear, the suspicion exists. Following his death, Wheeler's second wife applied for a pension, which makes one wonder whatever happened to the million and a half. She claimed her husband was struck in the lower third of the leg with the ball not exiting or being extracted until 1872, when it was surgically removed from the thigh of the left leg, but there is nothing in the way of a doctor's statement or other qualified practitioner to corroborate these battlefield injury. But we are getting somewhat right. as good as the 67th Ohio. In May, they marched south from Manassas Junction, engaged in a skirmish at Front Royal, where they captured about a hundred prisoners. In June, they boarded transports with Alexandria, Virginia, and disembarked at Harrison's Landing on July 2nd. As part of Brigadier General John James Peck's division of Major General Erastus D.C.'s 1st Army Corps, they fought in a skirmish above Harrison's Landing at Melbourne Hill on July 3rd, renewed it the next day, and repaired to Westover. <coughs> Some of you who were on the Richmond battlefield a few years ago will probably remember walking about the lovely grounds at West In early August, they fought another skirmish at Malvern Hill, after which they were assigned to North Carolina at Beaufort Harbor under Major General David Hunter, who took them in transport to Charleston, South Carolina, where they came under fire for 40 consecutive days in operations against more Island, now under the 10th Army Corps Commander Quincy A. Gilmore. The key to the defenses of Morris Island and the Charleston Harbor was (coughs) was Fort Wagner, which crossed the island at a narrow point. The 67th crossed over from Folly Island to participate in the storming of Fort Wagner. With its sister regiment, the 62nd Ohio, they held possession of the fort for about two hours, planning and maintaining their colors on the parapet and their brigade commander, George Crockett Strong, formerly of Butler's staff in New Orleans, was mortally wounded while leading the charge. He was struck in the thigh, and the wound brought on Lockjaw, and in 12 days he was dead. Seven out of the eight in the color guard were shot down, and Lieutenant Cochran of Company K, who would died from wounds received in this battle, noted in a letter that he had lost 22 of the 40 men. Who were with him at the start of the charge? Colonel Boris was shot within 150 yards of the fort and was carried while unconscious to a rear extempore hospital. A chaplain there administered to him, pouring him brandy into his mouth, and used a finger to probe for the mini ball. It couldn't be reached. So Boris underwent an on the job recovery. Sergeant Christian Goetz of C Company took a bullet, too, but his story will come out a little bit later in this narrative. Eventually, because of the pressure of siege guns, one of them weighed 16,000 pounds and could fire a 150-pound shell an unprecedented 8,000 yards into the heart of the city of Charleston, known as the swamp battery or march battery, the fort south the 67th next moved by transports to hilton head south carolina and remained on duty there until february 1864 when it re-enlisted meanwhile a great many of the officers and men were sent back to ohio on recruiting assignments one of these recruiters was second lieutenant Charles E. minor of company g Miner had enlisted as a private and had earned successive promotions to corporal sergeant first sergeant and second lieutenant and in enlisted from and when assigned to recruiting duty returned to Cleveland. At the time of his re-enlistment the government still owed him $200 on his original enlistment but the government now refused to pay him because he was an officer. And this appears to me rather ludicrous incentive for a recruiting officer. But uh, we will return to see how well Minor performed this task a little later on. In March of 1864, the regiment reassembled its recruits in Cleveland, and by the end of the month, we were at Camp Grant, a sibly tent city outside of Washington, D.C., where the men were drilled and squatted. They boarded transports in Alexandria and were assigned to the Department of Virginia under Major General Benjamin Butler in the 1st Brigade, 1st Division, 10th Army Corps. Under Colonel Joshua Blackwell Howell of the 85th Pennsylvania and Brigadier Robert S. Foster commanding the division. Early in May, Quincy Gilmore resumed command of the 10th Army Corps and they rejoined their old veterans from Hilton Head and it wasn't long before Benjamin Butler put them to work. Confederate lookouts warned the citizens of Richmond that an amphibious column of about 200 vessels were steaming up the James River at the city's doorstep. While Grant was crossing the Rapidan, Butler had taken this armada, loaded at Yorktown, round the tip of the York James Peninsula in the night, and was proceeding up the James with his some 30,000 man strong army. Five ironclads led the way, followed by a motley array of converted ferries, tugs and coasters, barges and canal boats. Benjamin Butler pointed westward as each transport passed his headquarters. And as if to emphasize the way he would wave his hat in an arc overhead and give his huge blubbery torso a victory swing. Little did he realize that he and his army would become a drink footed corked up at Bermuda Hunt. On May 9th, the 67th Regiment was sent to guard the right flank of the 10th Corps while destroying the railroad that ran from Sester Station to Petersburg. The regiment, with a section of artillery, was stationed about 12 miles from Richmond on a turnpike, and with instructions to hold it, it all hazards. On the morning of May 10th, the Confederates made a general attack, and the 67th maintained a solid front against four successive assaults. A section of the artillery fell into the Confederate hands, but was recaptured by portions of Company F and C. On May 10th, was both a glorious and a sorrowful day for the 67th. For so while they stood on picket duty as the 6th Connecticut tore up the railroad, 76 officers and men were killed or wounded. General Alfred Terry complimented Colonel Boris for their gallantry by saying, if I had 10,000 such men, I could march straight into Richmond. And for successfully holding the point, Horace was recommended for promotion to the brevet brigadier general of volunteers. Under a flag of truce, the dead were buried and the wounded carried from the field. and at daybreak on May 12th, the regiment set off for Drury's bluff. Smith's car on the right, Gilmore's on the left, with AIM's division posted at Waffle Junction and Cox's cavalry raiding the Richmond and Danville railroad line the station. Meanwhile, Haygood arrived to reinforce the Confederates at Port Waffle and to oppose Butler. He had with him about 2,600 men D.H. Hill was also coming up while Archibald Gracie's brigade reinforced Fort Darling with Drury's Bluff. The James River wasn't deep enough for Butler to be supported by federal monitors, and the Confederates had obstructed the river with sunken boats to navigation up the river, in addition to being hazardous, would be slow and bring on the heavy fire from the huge embrasure guns at Chatham's and Drury's Bluff. By skillful maneuvering of Bushrod Johnson's Cunningham and Horses Brigade, Beauregard cut off Butler's forces, and after some serious fighting, Butler withdrew in the rain as During cavalry struck his rear towards Bermuda Hundred. The army of the James by May 17th was bottled up, Bush Creek at its back, the curling James River holding in one side, the Appomattox the other, and with Beauregard across the front through the course. On May 20th, the 67th dug in at a place called Warebottom Church. The church was used as a small supply depot and it was not very far from where the regiment had been previously at the fight on May 10th. There is little today to distinguish this area. Just an old abandoned well and a gravestone marking the burial place well, William, actually, who traded and died there in 1775. I have uh, some pictures uh, here that I can pass around of the spring and uh, the roadside and the uh, marker. Uh, if you could circulate that about i it. This well, known as Warebottom Spring, was the scene of many poker games between both Confederates and Federals. And it was an unwritten law the area was neutral territory. Conversely, the rooftop of the church, which was used as a supply depot, was the vantage point that provided ideal surveillance over the field. But nevertheless, where bottom church is so indistinguishable place that I doubt seriously if anyone here has heard of it before. It was here that General Terry ordered Colonel Joshua Howell to take with him the 39th Illinois, the 67th Ohio, the 85th Pennsylvania, and the 6th Connecticut Infantry Volunteers to retake the ground and position lost that morning, specifically to retake the rifle pits, to reestablish the line, and to hold. Howell, age 58, a lawyer from Woodbury, New Jersey, and expelled by the Quakers for taking up arms, and way overage for line duty, put the troops into line of battle and sent them forward, the 6th Connecticut taking the lead. Confederate fire was rapid and heavy, but the volunteers and the double quick overran the first line of rifle pitch, couldn't hold them, and fell back to reform, and then surged forward again. This time they took them and held them. Ezra Warner in his work Generals in Blue highly commend Powell's efforts for this. Sergeant Christian Getz of Company C, who we mentioned earlier had been wounded at Fort Wagner, wrote home that, and I quote, We went into them with a yell and drove them a good piece, and after a few hours of hard fighting, we succeeded in getting back our rifles. Right after we had them, the Reds charged down them twice, but we repulsed them every time. After the firing had pretty much all ceased, and we were looking for another attack. A man came riding out of the woods. We saw him when he was pretty far off yet, and as he was coming nearer, we saw that he was none of our men. John Fulmer brought up and was going to shoot, and the captain, Captain John Chapman, who had enlisted as a private from Millersburg, Ohio, and had rose to the ranks of Company G before assuming the command of Company C. And the captain did not leave him shoot. He came up to us within about four yards and there he stopped and said come on man and then some of the boys hollered at him to surrender and then he looked up and seen he was not among his own folk, and gave his horse the spurs and was going to gallop off but there was about 20 musket balls followed him and he came down horse and off. our captain and purple Rowe ran out and got him in our line i went out and got the saddle off his horse. And the general's hat was lining there yet, and I got it, and I am now wearing Major General Walker's hat. I wish you could see it. Confederate General William Stephen Walker, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on April 13th, of 1822, had been raised by his uncle Robert, who was a senator of Mississippi and President Polk's secretary of the Treasury. Walker had served as a lieutenant in the Mexican War, winning a brevet captaincy at Chapultepec, and after the Mexican War, he remained in the service, but resigned in May of 1861 to cast his lot with the South. He had been in charge of a number of districts in the state of South Carolina in 1862 and 1863, and was appointed Brigadier General to assist Beauregard in the defenses of Petersburg. where Warebottom Church, he was very obviously confused as to where he was, and in refusing to surrender, he was shot in the ankle. Later, the right foot was amputated. After the war, Walker resided in Atlanta and was buried there in the Oakland Cemetery. Captain Chapman was a casualty in the ca- capture of Walker too. He severely strained his hernia and was forced to resign because of it. He wore a crutch for the rest of his life and died in Arkansas City, Arkansas City, Kansas on May 18, 1914, or only two days short the 50th anniversary of the capture of General Walker. Colonel Howell in his official report of the action at Warebottom Church listed the casualties at 300 killed and wounded, none missing, and estimated the Confederate losses at 800. Other studies list totals approximately the same. Colonel Boris wound up with General Walker's orders as a souvenir. About a month later, some privates from Parker's Virginia Battery, who were so annoyed at the commanding position that Warebottom Church held over the area that they stole out one night and burned the church to the ground. One of the less fortunate soldiers on May 20th in this fight at Warebottom Church was Private Sidney Perry, an 18-year-old enlisted from Cleveland. Before the war, he worked briefly as a clerk, With blue eyes and brown hair, he stood five feet four inches and received a bounty of $300 and $40 installments for enlisting on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1863. His recruiting officer was Lieutenant Charles Mike. There is nothing in the records indicating what happened to Perry except that he was wounded in action at Warebottom Church and that he died on May 20th from the unspecified wound. His mother, a widow, applied for a pension in November of 1865, stating her son had been her sole means of support and that she now subsisted by taking in Washington. She was granted a pension of $8 a month, retroactive to the date of her son's death. Sergeant Christian Gibbs went on to reside in Hennepin County, Minnesota following the war, and I hope he took General Walker's hat with him. He became a laborer and a farmhand and applied for a pension in 1892 while crippled with arthritis, and his widow continued on the pension rolls until 1915 at the rate of $12 a month. Following the fight over the rifle pits at Warebottom Church, the 57th Ohio was stationed in the Petersburg line, briefly occupying the position a month after Burnside's Battle of the Crater. And about 50 yards in front of the advanced line, according to the 45th annual at the end of September, the regiment marched north of the James to participate in a demonstration during the assaults against Fort Harrison and Gilmore, while Grant sent his main thrust to stretch out Lee's spinning lines to Peebles Farm. They pushed forward to a point on Newmarket Road near Laurel Hill and engaged in reconnaissance down the Darby Town Road in support of Cox's Cavalry in late October extended their lines over to the Terrell City Road. In December, the 10th and 18th Corps were consolidated into the 24th Corps under Major General E.O.C. Lord Edward Opho Krzysztof. And Colonel Boris now commanded the 1st Brigade as the Army settled down into Winter Headquarters, the 67th occupying the extreme right of the Richmond-Petersburg investment north of the James. On Sunday, March 12, 1865, their division, the 1st, was, was reviewed by General Grant, General Ord, Major General John Gibbons, and Edward M. Stanton, in a release to the New York Herald, says, Today, witnessed the magnificent review of the 24th Army Corps on the North Bank of the James River. In respect to martial appearance, the troops were unexceptionable. General Grant and Party arrived at Reno Landing shortly after 12 o'clock, and immediately wrote to headquarters of Major General Gibbons. The troops were at once drawn up and reviewed, and the Lieutenant General was accompanied by his entire staff with the exception of Colonel Bowers and Lieutenant Dunn. I'm not exactly certain how to take a description that the troops were unexceptionable, but I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. At any rate, the review was really a preface for the primary review to be held two weeks later. This time, President Abraham Lincoln was present, and according to the New York Herald again, the President arrived at Verena Landing in a special boat shortly after 2 o'clock, accompanied by General Grant, Mrs. Lincoln, and her youngest son, Pat, Admiral Porter, General Mulford, General Ludlow, Dr. and Mrs. Craven, and daughter, and a large number of friends who accompanied him from Washington. On landing at Verena, the President and his party were met by General Ord, General Gibbon, General Weitzel, accompanied by their respective staff, and at once wrote to the front calling front, for the accordance of the monarch. Many of you will recall that this is the review in which Mrs. Lincoln behaved very irrationally, telling Adam Bedell, Grand Secretary, she never allowed the President to see another woman alone. That other woman in this instance was Mrs. Griffin. And the next day, President Lincoln held the renowned conference aboard the River Queen at City Point with General Grant Sherman and Admiral Porter in attendance. Late in March, the 67th marched from the camp on the New Market Road and crossed the Appomattox on Broadway Landing, moving on through Poplar Grove to Hatcher's Run where they massed the charge Confederate Works. On April 2nd, they charged Fort Grey located west of Indian Town Creek and north of Fort Baldwin, one of the inner redoubt defenses of Petersburg. It had a 14-foot wide trench around it and an unfinished parapet on its right. Inside this fort, Nathaniel Harris's Mississippi Brigade, some of uh, Mahone's division, about 400 strong-willed men heard their leader implore them to hold the fort for two hours until Longstreet will be up. If the troops reached the unfinished parapet, they would stream into Fort Gregg, unchecked. And then John Gibbons, former commander of the Iron Brigade at 2nd Manassas, took his corps first in waved, and finally in a single flood of 8,000 veterans swarming into the interior of Fort Gregg. They stumbled over bayoneted and fallen rebels, grappled with fierce, savage men in hand to hand combat at the unfinished parapet was bayonets. Curses and drumming and screams of Fringe's men were everywhere. One rebel gun, still shattered with double canister and manned by a single cannoneer who still held the lanyard in his hand, was ordered to drop the lanyard or be fired upon. The response was shoot and be damned. And then followed a roar of canister that plowed the ranks out front, while the cannoneer riddled with bullets sprawled across the smoking gun. The superior federal forces ruled today. The Union battle flags were everywhere, and the South Side Railroad
0: had been reached.
1: During that night, Richmond and Petersburg were evacuated. Beginning with Monday, April 3rd, the 67th participated in the chase largely brought on by Sheridan's victory of Five forces, which led them eventually to the McCoon House at Adramatic. They set off down the Cox Road in the direction of Lynchburg. To Burkeville, the righteous station, skirmishing along the way, and finally to bivouac on the west side of the Acromatic Courthouse during the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia from April 10th to the 15th. The regiment next held a succession of garrison duty posts until December within the district of South Anna. <coughs> Company C was detailed at stations along the Virginia Central Railroad at Frederick Hall and Louise's Courthouse. And mostly at Columbia, a small village near the junction of the James and the Havana rivers. Lieutenant Charles E. Minor, the recruiting officer, acted as provost marshal supervising Louvain and Cookson County while being quartered in a barn inside the village. They engaged in transmitting messages to various posts and took a census of the freedmen in the area. On March 29th, excuse me, on November 29th, they reached Richmond where served breakfast at Living Prison. And in a few days reached city point where, after completion of their roll on December 7th, the later generation's Pearl Harbor Day, they were released from military service. In 1873, Colonel Boris felt ill from abdominal pains and submitted to what was in that day a very hazardous operation. Surgeons removed a piece of metal, three-fourths of an infield rifle lead ball weighing an ounce and an eighth. It was the bullet he had taken at Fort Wagner ten years before. After the war, he became a railroad lawyer and often spoke before audiences relating his wartime experiences. His saddle was on display in museums in anglings. After the war, members of the 67 scattered all over the country. Sergeant William Markley of Company C, who was also wounded at both Fort Wagner and Wherebottom Church, went to San Francisco, outlived two wives, And passed away there on November 1st, 1916. The names of the men appearing on the 67th roster are some unique and some of them slightly humorous names, such as Caleb Turner, Ezekiel Cantor, Truman Kidney, Lafayette Halif, Almiron Pangborn, and many others not nearly as humorous, such as Daniel Holland, William Hamilton, Moses Baxter just the name is Julie. Really. And that recruiting officer, Lieutenant Charles Meyer, I really would have liked to have met this man. He must have been a super salesman of all time. For in December of 1863, he signed up in addition to the unfortunate tribunaries, an Ebenezer, and a William, and an Enos, and an Edward, all with the same last name. Ebenezer and William were cousins, Enos and Edward were father and son, and all of them sprang from a common heritage one branch of the family, contributing a commanding general, Edwin, who fought in the and of Frederick and another branch of Senator Ferrell. Enoch's father, William, fought in the War of 1812, and his father, Chubo, fought in the Revolutionary War from Mrs. Essex County, New York. Edward's descendants would fight in the Spanish-American War, World War I, II, Korea, and the 10th minor in Mr. Eno's at the age of 44. On the day after Christmas of 1863, in his wear bottom church, he took a ball that went first through to his left shoulder, leaving him with a paralyzed left arm. He was transferred to Jarvis Hospital in Baltimore, where a month later he was discharged and left to nurse his wound as best he could. His son, Edward, was then reassigned into Company C from Company G, two companies that had received considerable attention in this narrative. When the regiment consolidated due to his heavy losses. I don't know whether Enos or Edwards intimately knew any of the men I've mentioned here Getz, Wheeler, Markley, Rowe, or even Chapman, because Chapman had to resign his commission. But certainly they were all familiar with Boris, and they couldn't have missed knowing all of each other. And each of the names I've brought up is listed on that Soldiers and Sailors Monument along Security Street in Cleveland. And Boris has a card bust on a tablet honoring his memory there. Edward migrated to Michigan. He named his first son after one of the Western heroes of the war, giving him the name of Sherman. And Sherman lived in a small country town north of Grand Rapids as a postmaster for most of his life. He was my grandfather. Thank you
0: and so capably tonight and uh, as a remembrance of this year uh, that system of the fire we have this plaque to present to you uh at first i thought we were going to be uh, a little bit late with this uh something might be a little too bit too late uh, not enough but too late we did finally it to get it and appropriately enough for you i'm happy to present this because it has a picture of managing
2: Um, thank
1: you very much this is a very pleasant surprise uh it will uh a very honored uh, position on the wall in what i call my grant room
0: we have any questions tomorrow questions or comments
3: i was just on the spot, but I, I, it's sort of interesting, In so cool, okay. uh, I noticed you mentioned in passing the 8th of daylight, the 39th Illinois, another hard fighting regiment with tremendous losses in tremendous places. Why do you suppose that some of these tremendously bloody engagements and pivotal engagements in some of the sieges, the South Carolina campaign, the Alabama campaign, are so looked over even in some of the greater work, you get maybe a page and a half on these campaigns, whereas you get forty pages on first, second, third, fourth, fifth, nineteenth conjectures,
1: etc. I obviously agree with you, otherwise I wouldn't have pursued my study at the study of the sixty-seventh Ohio. Uh, when I initially became interested in Civil War studies, I only was familiar that I had ancestors who had served in And then naturally, I assumed it had to have been with the victor Grant. And then many years later, I found out that they weren't even near each other, except on one occasion. And uh, so I have pursued uh, study, a study a la Wiley, with a smattering of uh, individual approaches ever since. Uh, in the meanwhile, maintain an interest in grant. And I couldn't agree with you more, that I think there are a great number of uh, worthy organizations that have their own study, uh, do them, they have their own story to tell, very noble, and we really couldn't neglect them. Yes, Doctor
3: small
1: point, but I thought Mrs. Lincoln had her play with uh, Mrs. Ord. Uh, It's true that she did have with Mrs. Ord, and I, in fact, if you look at my notes, you will see that I have Mrs. Ord, and then it's stretched out Mrs. Griffin. There's conflicting evidence on this. Uh, Shelby Foote says Mrs. Griffin, and I didn't feel as though I should argue with Shelby Foote, and that's why I changed. Uh, but I agree with you, many of the other references do say it's Mr. Doerr. He's that's right. Uh, CTO
3: incidentally, was temporarily in charge of the private court division, but, uh, unfortunately for Horde, the fortune for Union cause maybe they'll be made over.
2: I was
0: wondering how you have worked in
1: I might also uh, add, now that you've heard the speech, that a few meetings ago at this very table up here, there were a number of past presidents at the table, and as each was introduced, one gentleman in our audience, who will remain anonymous, proceeded to say Boo to Davis, Lipinski, Terry Carr. And when he got to myself, he said, well, we haven't learned to hate him yet. (laughs) And I just want to say that you can start now, Marshall.
0: Well, and, uh, we always hear the term OVI, but you never hear the PVI or the II, uh, Illinois uh, Volunteer. What do you suppose that is? It's, uh, Ohio Volunteer Infantry is well known. It's true, it is well known. I'm not really
1: sure why that would be either. Uh, it's very convenient to say OVI, mm-hmm. uh, just as it's become very convenient for me to say USG. But uh, I think that's part of it. But it certainly isn't all of it. Uh, Another aspect I think that may have contributed somewhat to it is the, in its day, the relative remoteness of Illinois from publishing centers, Uh, in that works from the more populated centers would tend to sell better uh, or could draw an audience of people at a dinner and consequently, more pamphlets were made up this way. Uh, this is a supposition on my part, and um, if anybody else happens to know, uh, we'd appreciate hearing. Yes, Henry? Uh, I think part of it often has to do with the bottles they had. They got to go. Fortunately, they figured out that there was no bottle of OBI. So
3: they went through of the other states in the north. Yeah. But OBI was. Uh, yes. I I might also mention, since I've been doing work with the Illinois Troops, uh, the Illinois initials are IM, they always refer to them as Illinois literature, even when they were in the district. As many of the Connecticut Troops were always referred to as a National Guard, IM are Illinois initials.
0: Yeah, yeah, I might say, well, it was originally, last Friday, I had the pleasure to being in this place, and uh, working a day within the view of the monument. Oh, so you was were? Because it it's there, alive <laughs> and well, and guarded by thousands of pictures. <laughs> 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 that you put a roof over okay.
1: But uh, I thank you all for being uh, so uh, attentive during the speech. Uh, and I know that many of the places that we covered Very briefly, many of you here in this room have been there in person, especially on our Richmond tour a few years ago because uh, we hit just about all the places that the 67th Ohio was at on that tour. And in fact, uh, I'm looking forward to the end of this month when I'm going down to Virginia again. So you know where I'm going to be. I have uh, up here uh, some old, Books and one uh, (coughs) pamphlet on the uh, statue if anyone wants to to look at it. And inside this book, which is about three-fourths apart, which is why I didn't pass it out, there is a picture of Colonel Boris, which you're more than welcome to come on up and look at. Uh, Also, uh, I have the the old standby of battlefield uh, hikers. One of the maps which will pinpoint uh, where Bottom Church for you. Uh, this particular map is most unique in that it is the handiwork of our tour guide from the Fredericksburg uh, tour, Bob Crick, for which I'm very grateful for this map.
2: There's, uh,
0: earlier this evening, uh, the new membership applications and also the tables of organization for the Civil War armies, Those are produced for us by Gratis Arts, that's otherwise known as Jury Warshaw, and I want to thank him for his work on them. And just two quick things before we adjourn. Again, I want to remind you that uh, Bill Cazanito will be at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, on wednesday the 20th of this month from four o'clock on and he'll be there to sign copies of his new book antietam the photographic legacy of america's bloodiest Day." Uh, our october meeting will be on the 13th and we will hear dr harold hyman <coughs> speaking on has the lincoln murder conspiracy theme been exhausted uh, in large part dr hyman will be taking some well-earned shots at uh, the ship sun productions on the uh, Lincoln conspiracy uh, movie that was on not too long ago. So, thank you all for coming.